Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is the former rapper and now broadcaster Nihal Arthanaika. Born to Buddhist parents of Sri Lankan origin in Essex, Nihal performed for five years as an artist before turning his hand to promotion and working as a freelance music journalist. There can't have been too many Sri Lankan rappers on the scene in 1995. He eventually found his home at Radio 1 and hosted many award-winning shows before he moved to Radio 5 Live, where he now presides over an afternoon show which has an eclectic guest list as wide as it is deep. His TV work has also been diverse and this summer he was a regular on the BBC's evening highlight show during the Tokyo Olympics with his sideways look at the lesser covered sports. I was really keen to get Nihal onto Midpoint because he was 50 this year and as a regular Five Live listener I'd got the sense over the last 12 months that being in midlife is something that was at the forefront of his mind, particularly the physical side and I'm particularly keen to explore how our cultural tastes and references change as we get older. Today's episode is, of course, sponsored by Solgar, with more than 300 products that bear the hallmark of the gold label. Distributed in over 60 countries across the globe, Solgar is trusted by millions of customers worldwide. So head over to the Solgar website now to shop their gold standard range. OK, let's hear from Nihal. Thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Because, oh, I'm so honoured to be asked. I mean, not only do I, I hear your voice a lot because I'm an avid Five Live listener, but what I've noticed and the reason why I particularly wanted to have you on this series was you're talking more and more about all those midpoint subjects. And I think you turned 50 this year, didn't you? I did, yes. And it feels like that has been a moment for you. Am I right? Yes. I've tried to analyze what it means because I didn't manage to have a 50th birthday party. So I didn't really announce it to all my friends. We did a few little things where we could meet up. There's moments where I feel sad that I didn't manage to do something big around it. And then there are other minutes where I just get on with it. And then there are moments where you think, how much time do I have left to do stuff? Right. Because 50 is halfway, right? Halfway to a century. You could easily live to be 100. You're a healthy man, <laughs> right? So, so, so was it looming? Was that number? Did it mean more to you than, say, turning 40 or turning 30? That's such an interesting question. I've never really thought about my age because, firstly, when I don't have a beard, people tend to think that I look a lot younger than I am. And also because I'm so embedded in kind of popular culture I don't ever feel old like I look at I look at some of the school dads and I think how have you allowed this to happen right like, <laughs> how have you how have you dressed this way or acted this way or shrunk your social life to be a very narrow thing I mean last Friday and Saturday I was at warehouse project in Manchester till 2 30 in the morning and we went out, had a little bit of a rave, came back into the, the area we were in and then and went in and out. And today on the show, we had Anne-Marie, who's one of the biggest pop stars, 
that's still my life. I'm so glad you've got straight into culture because you were a rapper, right? Yes. So <laughs> when you're yeah. 22 years old and you're rapping, do you ever imagine kind of be? You can't imagine being 50 and being that person because you know. I mean, we've got music artists who rap, right? Who are huge selling artists in their 50s, but they don't get to 50 and keep doing that. So when you were that age, did you think this is a short-term thing? I'm going to turn into my dad. Oh. There was no question of me turning into my dad just simply because of the two vastly different cultures that we came from. So for him, it was about academia, comfortable slacks and good quality knitwear, right? Whereas me, it's still about (laughs) Air Force Ones, great coats and clothes that are age appropriate, but say something about me. You know, I'm I'm not about to accept what people believe a 50 year old should be that's why I still wear Air Force Ones you know I still have I have a trainer collection that my son covers right so (laughs) that's that tells me all I need to know and that's not age inappropriate because amongst my social circle certainly my social circle in London we all dress how we wish to dress there's no kind of this is now not appropriate for me actually this feels right so i'm going to keep doing yeah. this and you're right there is a kind of maybe a more metropolitan it is that kind of you know move out into maybe the countryside that may maybe people of a certain age look different and if you're doing the kind of stuff you're doing going to raves going to music events interviewing young people that keeps your your cultural reference points really current which i think is so important as well in terms of an aging mindset Yeah, because the fundamentals of why you like music, Gabby, don't change. You're still looking for a really amazing chorus, a great energy, truthfulness in lyrics, a star. So in that respect, I am as in awe of someone like Parsaloo, a rapper, as I am in awe of Fleetwood Mac, right? Because there are just certain energies certain creative instincts that you just are universal. The idea that you get to 93 and you stop listening to hip hop because you think, well, they were the glory years from like 88, 89 to 93. It's just absurd. It's absurd. If you're someone who is excited by culture, then it will keep you young. And I often say to my friends that hip hop culture keeps you young. At heart, I'm that kid with a microphone in front of me rapping. I'm still that kid. I still love clothes that match. So another thing is your top and your trainers should match. That's so funny because my son said something to me the other day about his trainers and I said about his top and he said, but they don't match. And I, and I thought he just had a really weird kind of picadillo about, so I didn't know that he was actually trying to match his Air Force One swoosh colour. And that's how you would. That's exactly, and that is is still my mentality. Like if I see someone with an Adidas tracksuit top and Nike trainers, that that is like, oh my gosh, it's like fingernails on a blackboard for me when I see people. (laughs) And that's a hip hop thing. Is that how you know they're not hip hop people? 100%. And Ramesh Ranganathan and I are, are friends because we have this shared love of hip hop and he's in his 40s. But We have this shared love. We actually have this kind of shared upbringing where we were both Asian kids in non-Asian areas who discovered a sense of identity through hip hop. That's what happened. And I still have that. So it's kind of weird because some Five Live listeners may look at me or look at my Instagram or whatever and go, why are you dressing like a kid? But to me, I'm not dressing like a kid. I'm dressing how I have always wanted to. That's why I wear so much camouflage. I've got so many camo pieces in my wardrobe because I just love 
that because there's a lot of hip hop in that. And hip hop culture went on to influence so much of what is popular culture. That's where your son and I could probably have a really meaningful conversation about trainers. And weirdly enough, Gabby, things don't change as much as you think they have. There's still universal truths about what is cool and what isn't cool. And those things mean that you can identify people and then you can just build a bridge between them. And that doesn't matter whether in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, or now me in my 50s. And one of the things also I picked up in life is, is spotting those kids and going, there's something about you. There's some energy about you. And do you gravitate towards that? Yeah, of course, because, you know, that's part of when you get to my age, part of it is to identify who those young people are. And, and if they need it and if they ask for it, just to provide a bit of guidance about how we navigated the industries we're in. And in return, you get a bit of their energy and their youthful yes. glow. It keeps, it keeps yes. fueling you. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so this, is, this is really interesting because the thing that I would be slightly um, self-conscious about from the stuff you were saying is that not wanting to be that old guy, but you, you, know, you look cool, you dress cool, you know, you genuinely know and love the music. You're not kind of aping this thing to try and get in with people in their 20s that you're at raves with, you're at uh, warehouse events with. How do those people around you react to you? It's, it's quite funny because that makes you feel old because they're usually like, I, they they use terms that your son will understand. They'll say things like OG, like you're an OG. So you're an original gangster, right? Which I was never a gangster, but it's OG is like a term of respect for someone who's got gray hair in their beards, I think. And then they <laughs> might say things like, you're a legend in this. You've been in this since day dot. Like, what was it like in the 90s when this happened? Like they'll say all those kinds of things. And also the most important thing is that I don't care if someone says, are you trying to be cool? Or you're Because I'm confident in that my history and my heritage in music and culture is so deep and so broad. Mm. I don't care. You know, people can come and say, oh, who's he? And why is he wearing Air Force Ones? It's like, because he wants to. Like there's nothing stopping any man in his 50s from dressing how he wants other than mm. the fear of someone else's opinion. But if you don't care about anyone else's opinion in this regard, and I don't, then you're good. It doesn't matter. Do you ever have to wear a suit for anything? Yeah. I rarely wear a shirt with a suit. It's usually with a T-shirt and a, and a suit. So, it, you know, it, it means I don't so have no to. Tie. I mean, I was, like I said, not really. I mean, I wore a black tie for the GQ Man of the Year Awards a few weeks back, but... Other than, and I like that because, of course, most of the time I'm just, like today I'm wearing a two-pack, like That's sweat, very cool. right? So actually putting a suit on, I feel great in a suit because I don't have to wear one all the time. But even how you rock a suit should have a certain flex about it, which is something different. I mean, I don't have the frame to wear like a super tight three. You know, I can't look like Jamie Redknapp, even if I tried, right? So I like suits that have much more kind of a Japanese framing to them, which is unstructured blazers. I like That's the kind of look I, I, I like. So for the Brits one year, Oliver Spencer made me a wax cotton camouflage suit, mm. right? 
but there's trousers with judo pants. So they were they were quite low hanging, but just above the, the ankle. And the jacket was a Nehru jacket, but it was a Nehru camouflage jacket. So if you, even if you're going to wear a suit, you wear a suit that has got a different kind of vibe to it. So your wife, Isha, I know her name because you mentioned her on air. I don't know her personally, is obviously a stylish woman then. And it's important to her, is it, as well, to, to kind of keep with trends? I think we're a house that care more about style than fashion. Both of my children, because I have a girl and a boy as well, they're both developing their own sense of what they want to wear. He's actually really looking forward to getting into a lot of the suits I've got because when he goes into sixth form in three years' time, he'll, I think, they have to wear suits. And at the moment, he's got a really long hooded camo trench coat, which he loves wearing. He loves the feel of it. He loves the length of it. So he's got that kind of vibe going on, whereas... At Goodwood recently, my daughter wore a tartan suit with purple hunter's boots on. Wow. Right? Huge, so she, she's like... Got a style. Yeah. Yeah, she's like out and there. She's, she's here a bit I younger. Am. She's a bit younger than me. She's 12. Yeah, she's well, okay, 12. Very- you know, I've always bought pieces that I think I would want to wear in 10, 15 or 20 years time. I don't think there's anything currently in my wardrobe that I wouldn't feel comfortable wearing when I'm 65. Mm-hmm. And some of those, I once hosted an event and it was at this little venue in London. And I said to some of the crowd, I said, I've got jeans that are older than you, right? Because <laughs> some of the things I've kept and I still wear them. Like That's what I say to my kids. I say, look, don't fall into the trap of advertising someone's brand for them by just having it emblazoned across. Don't ever do that. It's it's super naff to walk around in saying, look at me, I bought this designer, therefore I'm cool. It's not cool. It's not cool at all. It's naff. So they've kind of taken that on board. And even if I could afford to give them super expensive stuff, uh, there's no way I would put a 13-year-old in a £250 T-shirt. No, God. I'm, I'm amazed, actually, when I when I kind of see some of the stuff kids wear. Um, it's so interesting that we spent the first 20 minutes of this podcast talking about clothes, and this is not where I expected it to go. <laughs> but but this is really interesting because your ageing process is, is truly embedded in the music background that you had and the, the culture that you've grown up with. And while you've gone to Five Live and started to interview everything from world leaders to, you know, people who are experiencing breakdowns or somebody who's, you know, written a fantastic book, all these other interesting things you talk about on Five Live, you didn't talk about when you were on Radio One, right? But were they interesting to you? Did you have kind of, a you know, were you interested in politics and current affairs in that way then? Yeah, to a certain, look, I, like you, Gabby, are curious and that's all you need. Someone over the weekend said something to me, which is really interesting. They said, don't strive to be interesting, strive to be interested. And that's mm. what it is, you know, mm. just be interested. So I'm as curious about a woman who, through drug addiction and prostitution, had to give up her children to find out about her life than I am about Sir Billy Connolly or Sir Elton John. So what Five Life has given me, and particularly in that slot from 1 till 4 p.m., is the freedom to explore the world and Mm -hmm. to ask questions about the world we live in and to ask questions about the human experience. And that's really it. I'm a facilitator for storytellers. That's what I am. Mm -hmm. 
And that curiosity in itself, I think, will keep you young and keeps us young, yes. doesn't it? Well, yes. you know, as, yes. a, as a collective. And there comes a point for a lot of people, and in fact, our expert who's coming on today is a really good example of that because she made a huge wholesale kind of life change in midlife, that the curiosity then leads them to just abandon everything they thought they knew and go and do something wildly different. It doesn't feel to me like you're getting that itch in midlife. It's a very kind of uh, organic kind of um, growth into other areas and interests. Yeah, I think the the thing that scares you a bit is, is how relevant you are as you get older. And when I was asked to leave Radio 1, as every Radio 1 DJ eventually, as very few of us end up leaving of our own volition, um, you, you know it's because they don't feel you're relevant anymore mm. to their audience. But the great thing about what I did, which was pre-planned two years before I left Radio 1, was that I built behind the scenes an experience in speech radio, broadcasting for the BBC Asian Network, because I saw that I didn't want, it wasn't Radio 1 necessarily, I didn't want to be in a club at 50 behind turntables telling a bunch of 18-year-olds to put their hands in the air for the umpteenth <laughs> time. Like, you know, it was, it, 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 you know, my last big gig was at Glastonbury in 2014, I think. And I remember coming off stage after doing a two-hour set and I felt nothing. You know, I just didn't mm. feel excited or exhilarated by the process of being on stage and mixing records for other people's benefit. But I do feel exhilarated by talking to Gabriel Byrne about his life or listening to Jordan B. Peterson or A.C. Grayling or mm. Chrissy Hind or any numbers. Just talk about themselves because these are extraordinary people. You know, that's yeah. exhilarating to me now in a way that playing music isn't really anymore. Listening to it and raving to it, yes, but not DJing it. And not rapping. You don't have a secret kind of like 20 minutes a week where you uh, you kind of dig back into your roots and start rapping a bit or writing something. Well, it, it's once I turned 50, I thought to myself, I would really love to do a middle-aged rap album. <laughs> right? So I kind of rap about mortgages and uh, getting up off the sofa and how difficult well, that has now become. That's what I was going to say to you before, because when you were saying about you still love rap music, but do you still relate to what the kids are talking about? You know, whereas what you've just talked about is what most midlife people are experiencing. So, so I think there's a market for this. Yeah, I, I, I've genuinely, and now my 13 year old is, is making beats. He's producing song. Uh, well, he's, he's in the beginning stages of learning how to use Ableton and, and make beats and, and stuff. So my, my, in my head, my dream is that he will make an album's worth of music and I will write and record the raps about being in my 50s, uh, <laughs> which is kind of weird. But I, I, I genuinely, I would love to do that. I should probably yeah. stop talking about it and do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've you've talked about it now, so you, the idea is out there. So yeah. you now know it's your idea. Um, so, so in terms of your, you've mentioned before your upbringing and your background and how that has given you, I guess, 
cultural and life experiences in an industry that perhaps didn't have as many people with Sri Lankan parents and Sri Lankan background as you. I mean, how many, how many Sri Lankan rappers did you come across? Well, if I, if I was in a dressing room and there was a mirror in it, then two. <laughs> but other than that, me. <laughs> and at the time, how did that feel? And how did you, how did you overcome any doubt that you were in the right place? Because I wasn't asking for permission to enter. I was putting the work in to ensure that nobody could question me. So I once stepped on stage at a hip hop club in the 80s in front of this DJ called 279. And he used to run this night and I knew that he just didn't rate me. Like he didn't think I could rap. He didn't know why I was hanging out in these hip hop clubs. And I got up on stage and I freestyled when you rap off the top of your head. And, uh, and from that point on, he respected me. You've always just had to step into the breach and say, the only way I'm going to get you on side is by proving that I'm not a joke. And that, that was just, but that's how you come through hip hop. Hip hop culture is so competitive, so ultra competitive at its very heart, whether it's break dancing or whether it's graffiti art or whether it's DJing, whether it's MCing, you're always competing with each other. That's what it is. I mean, rap battles, which I did back in the days, are so hardcore. There's literally nothing like it in popular culture where you sit in front of or you stand in front of an absolute stranger in a crowd full of strangers and you talk about their mum in a way that in any other context would be a guaranteed fight, right? And what did your parents think about that at the time then? How did they get their heads around what you were doing? Well, thankfully, they didn't attend many rap battles. Otherwise, <laughs> my mum would have been very upset, I can imagine, with some of the but things. But they, they knew what you were doing. They yeah. knew what you were entering into. But they yeah. had no, non- no knowledge of it, no experience of it. And that's where I feel truly blessed to have had them as parents because they weren't, you're going to become a doctor, right? Or you're going to become an engineer or you're going to become an accountant, they pretty much allowed me to make my own mistakes. And I must have put them through a lot of stress. You know, when in a little village in ethics, you've got three or four massive dudes, some black guys with dreads, with gold teeth, walking through your living room to go into the back room where a little studio is. That must have freaked my dad out, right? Like he's this little dude from Sri Lanka and he's looking at these guys uh, and he's probably terrified (laughs) through his own kind of racial stereotyping. And I did that a lot, right? But the first time I was in this rap metal band and we played at the Astoria in London and my mum and dad and my uncle and auntie who were over from Sri Lanka, both my uncle and auntie are lawyers. My uncle smokes pipes (laughs) and he's at the back of this insane gig watching me on stage. And it kind of clicked for them. Your passion, you know, if you've got passion as a child, if my kids didn't have passions for things, that's where I'd start to worry. I don't care what it is, but have a passion, you know, and you had a passion. So that for them was enough, clearly, wasn't it? That you were happy and had that goal. I just think they knew they couldn't stop me, right? They didn't understand the context to it. They didn't feel quite rightly that it was a career or that it would be anything other than a hobby. Oh, he's doing music, So there was no context, Gabby, for them to be disapproving. There was just, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But as long as you go to university and do a degree, I'll be happy. Right. So do that. You know, I was an academic 
failure, really. I mean, I didn't try that hard. I was too busy probably trying to rap than studying. And I ended up with a C, D and an E at my A-levels. And my dad was a straight A, mathematics, physics, an unbelievably smart man, right? So uh, it must have been a huge disappointment for him in many ways, but he didn't really say that to us. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy that he didn't say that to us. And has that, has that influenced the way you put pressure on your children or don't put pressure on them in terms of academic work? Or do you still want them to do well? Does that, is that an instinctive thing as a parent for you that you, or you want them to put the maximum effort in to try yeah. and achieve what they can? I want them to be the best at whatever they do. Okay. But I'm not, I'm not standing over them constantly harassing them to be so because I feel as though it has to be self-generated like I can't force you to want this because it has to come from within you my son just wants to win that's it it doesn't come from me it doesn't come from his mother he just wants to win at anything that he does and when he loses he can take it incredibly badly and my daughter, she's much more like I was. So I've kind of cruised through life. And I say that because I've never really done things that I don't love. So when you love doing something, a spectator might think you're grafting and you're grinding and the hustle and the struggle and all that. But when you're kind of doing it, you're just out doing it. You know, when I was in my mid-twenties, I was probably going to two or three gigs plus after parties five nights a week <laughs> in London, right? Oh. We were out relentlessly working for a PR company, making connections, trying to hustle up work for the PR company I was working for, be seen in all the places, shake hands. I was doing that relentlessly. Now, my parents didn't tell me to do that or no. instill in me that need. Absolutely. And it, it, I think is a proof, isn't it, that if you love what you do, you never do a day's work in your life. And that feels kind of how your career has gone. You've loved it all and you've morphed naturally through these periods. But let's talk about the physical side of ageing. You've already mentioned getting up out of the chair. Are you bothered about kind of the physical deterioration of the, of the body, which is inevitable? Well, I mean, my dad died of a heart attack at 62, right? And he told me a few years before that his plan was to get to 65, spend six months a year in Sri Lanka, six months in the UK consulting. And he never got to see it. And just about maybe six months ago, I had some blood tests and they showed that cholesterol heading in the wrong direction for type 2 diabetes, all of these things were kind of converging on me. And I made a decision not long before I went to Tokyo that I would seriously try and change what I ate to exercise more. I got a gym membership, um, a very expensive one because, and I say that not to boast, I say it because all the cheap ones I'd ever had, I never went. Right? Whereas it's if you, easy, not, easy not to use them. Yeah, it's easy not to use them. Whereas this one hurts me every time that direct <laughs> debit comes out of my bank account. So I'm adamant that I should go and I sit, I only do really one thing, which is I sit on a recumbent bike and I cycle my ass off for like half an hour and I swim. I like to swim. And then I, I was getting into playing tennis and that subsided because of lockdown, but I want to try and get back into that again. So I was also 
discovering that I couldn't go and kick a ball around with my son. You know, I couldn't, because I'd just be out of breath. Mm-hmm. And I was put, I put on a lot of weight during lockdown, comfort eating. So all of that stuff really led to me going, okay, I'm in my 50s now. I have to take this shit seriously because if I look after myself in my 50s, then my 60s and my 70s will be much better. But if I don't, my 60s and 70s are going to be crap and I'm going to end up looking like Steptoe. And I don't want that to happen to me. So you lost weight, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're getting fitter and you're making better food choices. It's trying to stay away from white bread um, cakes because I've got the sweetest tooth in the world. Oh my God, I could just, I could eat cakes from beginning of the day till way into night. So I've done that. I'm not a big alcohol drinker. So that's, that's good anyway. You're getting your sugar from the cakes. That's why. Well, that's <laughs> right. That's right, Gabby. But now what I'm trying to do is is to not do that. So I don't have it in the house because if I have it in the house, I'll eat it. So I've had to really, and it's been amazing really, because I just thought, didn't think I could. And then I just decided I wouldn't and I didn't. And it's never too late to make those kinds of no, it isn't. style changes. No. And, you know, especially when you get a little warning sign like that, you know, a little kind of message, yes. a health message that says, you know, you can reverse those things. So uh, that's good. Excellent. I'm glad you're using the gym as well. It looks like the expensive gyms work for you. The expensive trainers, the expensive gyms <laughs> and, the, uh, and the designer clothes. <laughs> uh, so so you're not worried at all about kind of having some Peter Pan syndrome or something or feeling like you've, you, you're kind of taking your youthful culture into middle age really well. And you're a, you're a great example of that. But I think it's, it's I, so do you know what? It's so authentic. Do, do, do you know what I think? I think that Peter Pan syndrome is a white thing because yeah. when you meet black people or even Asian people, they, cause, cause largely we age in a different way. Our skin yeah. doesn't age in the same way. I don't think we have any concept of that. I think it's a very kind of white Western idea. It's just like, like we'd meet uncles in Sri Lanka and they'd still be the neck in whiskey and they love to dance. One of the things that's really important about staying young and where Afro-Caribbean, African culture, Asian culture is really good in getting old. It's dancing. Like uncles don't care about that. Like they will dance. You go to a Punjabi wedding and all the old dudes are dancing to Bhangra music. If you go to Afro-Caribbean, like Jamaican events, no one's shy about that stuff. Mm-hmm. No one thinks, oh, I shouldn't be, ra- I shouldn't be raving anymore. So yeah. I wonder if there are cultural issues. No, I think you're, yeah, you don't see, you don't see white men over 50 on the dance floor at family functions. But you go to an Asian wedding and I'm sure I'm sure a West African wedding is exactly the same. You will see that. You will see that culture, that there is a culture around enjoying yourself and that is linked to music. And as long as you can do that, I mean, we did a whole show on Five Live about the importance of men dancing for men's mental health and how yeah. difficult it was because most men associated or certainly white men associated dancing with trying to attract women. Right. Right. And so they didn't, whereas in, in, in my culture and certainly in black culture, whether it be Caribbean or African dancing, isn't just about that. Dancing is about a connection with music. Right. 
It's so weird, though, that, that men would think that anyway, because I honestly can't think of a man I've ever been out with who I fancied more because of his dancing. You know what I mean? I, I Just stop the dancing, go practice somewhere secretly, and then let's sort this out later on. Right, because <laughs> one of the things when I first met my wife was our ability to go out and dance together. She loved that. My husband, when we first met, I was going out all the time, loved music, and I remember going to watch him play for Wasps, and he was warming up on the side, and... His footwork was incredible. He was like, and I was thinking, he'll be an amazing dancer. I was quite excited. I was looking at his feet thinking. So we went to a club or something and he literally can't hear the beat. But, but how can you not dance? Like I've seen your feet on a rugby pitch and what you're doing. You've got, and the night before our wedding, honestly, it was a wasted three hours. So, um, you know, that's where we're at. But he does, he does think he can dance. So, and he beat me on Strictly Come Dancing. Um, let's bring in our expert today, who is Lucy Kellaway, because she has done, Nihal, something very different uh, in midlife to your natural morphing. She has written Re-Educated, How I Changed My Job, My home, my husband and my hair. And Lucy, I I get sent quite a lot of books and I read your book and I just thought it was perfect, absolutely perfect for for mid-pointers because you did that thing that people don't do. You did throw throw it all away, but you changed everything, didn't you? Uh, Yeah, I did actually. But but the way that you say it, it it makes it sound like I just woke up one day and I thought, absolutely hate my life. Let's tear the whole blinking lot down. Actually, I think change is weirder than that. I had had this very stable life for decades and decades. And I think I just sort of started chipping away at it. And I think I made one change and that sort of unblocked me and sort of opened the way to everything else. The most trivial change of all, the the white hair, um, (laughs) was actually the one that came last, Um, possibly the one that required the most courage, though. Yeah, well, you were an FT journalist and columnist and you had a serious job on a serious newspaper and a great career doing interesting things. So on the outside looks like an enviable job and you married and had a beautiful home and, right, you get to midlife and then you decided to become a teacher. To go from that to being a secondary school teacher is a big leap, as you found. Yeah, it is a big leap. But actually, I'm lots of people thought I was completely nuts. But I like to say that this made perfect sense in that I'd been doing it. I've been at the FT for 32 years. I mean, that it's just too long. It's just too long. I mean, you know, as our lives get longer and longer, the thought that you just do one thing. I mean, I was writing the same blinking column for most of that time. You know, how often can a woman repeat herself? And sort of, yeah, sure, it was cushy, but the sort of glamour side of it that appealed to me so much when I was younger. As I got older, I just thought, ugh. Don't even care. And the teaching thing, I mean, it wasn't a great leap of imagination because actually my mum was an amazing teacher. And and more relevantly, my oldest daughter had left university and she had become a teacher too. And I looked at what she was doing with her life and I thought, actually, you're a lot more useful than I am. And if you can do it, so can I. So that was how it all started. You know, I really wanted you to come on, Lucy. And I had Nihal lined up for today. And I was thinking, how can I, is there any connection here, right? And actually, having chatted to Nihal for the last 30 minutes or so, the thing I was going to ask you about was how you connected with young people going into a comprehensive school in North London and looking at the faces of these 15-year-old kids, how did you connect with them at that stage in your life? 
Actually, that is the bit that I was hoping that I would find magic, and I really do. And, you know, kids are kids. These ones have very different backgrounds to mine, but connecting with them within the sort of rigidity of school, um, it's very easy. I mean, you know, as soon as you're in there and you're their blinking maths teacher, you have a, a, a sort of channel that has been made for you. And people sort of say, oh, isn't it horrible when you're, if you live so close to your school, you meet your kids in Sainsbury's. And I thought, no, I love meeting my students in Sainsbury's. It's just so great. Even if some of them aren't being terribly nice to you, makes you feel more optimistic yeah. because... Young people are at the beginning of their lives. Yeah, Nihal nodding in agreement. Yeah, it really is. Um, we went to an open day at the school my wife teaches at, and she introduced me to this young boy in a class, and he was of Greek heritage. And my wife said to him, oh, you think we should really visit Greece, don't you? And he said, yes, you must go to Athens. It has the best Wi-Fi. That was... <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, I totally agree with you that being around the energy of young people, the vitality is just amazing. Like you cannot help but be optimistic about the future of our world. And Lucy, in terms of, because I used to, I work in football, as you might both know quite yeah, a lot. And, yeah. um, and, um, and I'm also a Newcastle United fan. And when Sir Bobby Robson was manager of Newcastle, he was in his late 70s and he did as well as any manager has done in modern times with Newcastle United, got these players to, uh, you know, Champions League quarterfinals and, and the best position they'd had in the league for a while since Kevin Keegan anyway. And I used to look at him talking to these 22-year-old young black kids from North London who'd grown up in a totally different life, you know, style to him and a totally different um, sphere of influence. And, and he connected, you know, it used to amaze me all the time how he could talk to them in a way that, you know, they found interesting and they were able to follow his, you know, kind of orders and instructions and, and respect for him as well. And it was, for me, it was so heartening to see that because, you know, I, anything that is just a young man's game or a young person's game feels like it's missing something. You know, that, that kind of fusion of wisdom and age and youth is, is always such an intoxicating prospect, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, th I, I think it is. But that connection, which struck you as so magical, sort of strikes me as magical too. But it's the bit about teaching that I found easiest. And I don't, I, I think it's very unlikely that, that, that there's something special about me. I think that if you, if you want, if you're actually interested in young people and show that you're interested, then it's so easy to connect so easy and and I think they are endlessly amazed and amused by how different I am to them and vice versa um so it's a sort of it's a two-way thing I mean they can't believe how old I am for a start <laughs> um, you know when we started when we went through the whole COVID nightmare with them I said that they weren't particularly special in not being allowed to go to school uh, for me, it was the same in the 1970s, only it was the miners' strike and the schools were too cold. Um, and they were just sort of agog at that. And, and for me, it was the 1980s when the teachers went on strike. So, yes. um, 
Yeah, same, <laughs> yeah. same. Or it got, yeah, got sent home that. at lunchtimes. So how did you know, Lucy, right, that if, if your life feels a little bit broken in midlife and somebody's listening to this thinking, there's a lot of stuff I'm not quite sure I, I want to keep doing. It's not just about tweaking. You know, for you, it was big wholesale changes. Is it, is it trusting your gut? Is it, you know, is it just taking that leap of faith? What advice would you give to someone who's listening? Well, I think the time has to be right. And I'm certainly not going to say, hey, look at me, I've changed my life. All of you are slightly dissatisfied. Just tear the whole thing down. I mean, that would be disastrous advice. I, I, I first thought of doing this, not in my late 50s, but in my late 40s. And I thought then, actually, I'm too old to become a teacher. What is so weird is that 10 years later, I no longer felt I was too old. I felt I was just right. I think, I weirdly... Changing your life when you are really very late in the day is easier than doing it earlier mm-hmm. because you're leaving less behind, oddly, and the stakes are lower. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people say, oh, so brave what you're doing. And, and actually, I've set up this thing called Now Teach to try and encourage other middle-aged people like me uh, to become teachers. And actually... I mean, sometimes confronting a class, a really difficult class feels quite brave in the moment, but, the, but, but changing my life didn't feel very brave because I'd done journalism. I, I, you know, there was very, very little jeopardy. I wasn't actually by then giving up very much. And how bad is it if I turned out to be useless at teaching and hating it? Well, actually, I've set up this thing called Now Teach to try and encourage other middle-aged people like me to become teachers for me it would have been a catastrophe because I'd set up this whole organization for other people to do it so I had up the ante on myself massively but in general so long as other people aren't foolish enough to do that you change career and midlife and it doesn't work well how bad is that if the time is right for you it's not that scary the stakes are quite low you can definitely afford to fail and probably with that attitude you're not going to anyway. Nihal said earlier on about not caring what people think and if it doesn't work out for you so what as you say Lucy um, I really recommend this book actually How I Changed My Job My Home My Husband and My Hair re-educated by Lucy Calloway is definitely something you should consider reading if you want to change something huge and if you want to go into teaching Lucy you've mentioned your organisation so give it another uh, mention now because somebody listening to this will want to go into teaching I can almost guarantee yes, it. It's called Now Teach, and it's to encourage people who have done other things with their lives to train as teachers and share all of that experience in the classroom. We, we had 45 people in our first year, the youngest of whom was 43. The oldest was 71. We've had 500 people altogether. We're growing every year. And yeah, it's great. We have fantastic classes. And the education system needs you. Lucy, thank you so much. You've probably got loads of marking to do. Um, so I'll uh, I'll release you into your uh, into your textbooks. But thank you so much for telling us a bit more about Now Teach. Take really care. Great. Thanks, Lucy. So the other reason I wanted to get you on here, Nihal, before we finish, is because I thought I watched your brilliant pieces that you did for the highlight show during the Olympics, and they were thoroughly entertaining and brilliant. I love the kind of random esoteric sideways look at different sports and and the Olympic yeah. experience. But I thought, ah, oh, here we go. Here's a midlife change. He's going to become a sports presenter. This is the next. This is the next iteration of Nihal Arthanaika. So is, is that is that something I expect to see on Match of the Day next? Or um, I made I made it, it well. I made it very clear to BBC Sport that I'm not a geek about sport. You know, I'm a generalist. So in that respect, going to 
one day do Greco-Roman wrestling, the next day doing artistic swimming, the next day doing skateboarding, the next day doing BMXing, the next day doing fencing worked really well for me. But you're not going to come to me for like they would with you, with your in-depth knowledge of sport. I'm not that guy. So what I brought to the Olympics was me, not the Olympics turning me into a sports broadcaster because they know that's not my strength. That's not my wheelhouse. So that's why those films looked so different because those films were me essentially doing how I wanted to do sport. That's why they had hip hop references in them from time to time. They had lots of camera trickery going on. We used lots of visual gags because that's my sense of humor, childish sense of humor. So that's basically what happened. So no, I won't be, I won't Mark Chapman or any of those guys got no worries anytime soon about me uh, you know I'm quite but happy doing what I you'll do. get that you you do know you're going to get the call now for the Commonwealth Games to do the same thing yeah and, and, that, and that that you know that conversation has been had it's, been, it's already been had well, right? well I mean you know nothing's guaranteed as you know but yeah. um that and we're only three years away from Paris so in that respect I'd like to do I'd like to do what I did in Tokyo which they felt really worked Again and again and again. That I'm, I'm more than happy. If yeah. I'm dropped into a, a big sporting event every every couple of years, I'm good with that. I I'm mean, it's not a bad gig. It's not it? a bad gig. <laughs> and, and Tokyo was especially challenging for all the reasons that are pretty obvious. You know, Olympic Games in a pandemic with no supporters, no spectators was weird, you know, to say the least. But, you know, there's so often points in your career where people just get you to do things and you don't know how it's going to turn out. They don't really know how it's going to turn out. And if you nail it, then everyone's happy, right? Uh, and so far, but touch wood, you know. Just going back to what we were just saying, actually, I think we did know how it was going to turn out because you have a curiosity and you have a passion and you have uh, great broadcasting skills. And so actually, that's the beauty, isn't it, of getting to midlife and being able to make these choices and decisions and doing things with experience. There's got to be some kind of merit in having your 10,000 hours, you know, your Malcolm yeah, Gladwell kind 100%, of experience. Yeah, without a so, doubt. I mean, the thing that, you know, when I first started Five Live, there was an element of the listenership, a very small one, thankfully, who regarded me as a diversity hire, right? Similarly, being a woman or being a person of colour, there'll be a group of people, thankfully small, but very noisy who will argue the only reason you're there is because mm -hmm. of the BBC ticking a box. And I had to, and that got to me, you know, when I first got to did Five it? Live, yeah, it definitely got under my skin because maybe I believed them, right? Maybe partly yeah. I did. And then the more I did it and the more people like Ricky Gervais or Freddie Flintoff or, I mean, it's loads, would say that's the best interview I've done or that was an unbelievable question or, you know, their publicists would be like, they're, they're, they loved that interview. The more they, they suddenly you just grow in stature. And now, now nobody could say anything to me to make me feel insecure about my, my, my skills, my skill set in broadcasting. There's not, there's literally nobody alive that could make me feel insecure about it. And that's taken a long time to feel that way, you know. That's that's a really amazing position to get to because I'm not sure I'll ever feel like that. Well, you should. Well, you <laughs> I'm not should. Sure I'm sure I'll ever feel well, that. Well, you should. That secure in what I do. I'm always feeling like I'm looking over my shoulder. Still, you know what I mean. I don't. That's why I'm incredibly secure about whoever deps for me when I'm away. Or I don't care. 
but I just know how brilliant I am at what I do. And, and I, I refuse to allow any kind of imposter syndrome because I think, you know, one of the things that separates me when I was growing up from some of my peers was the private schools they went to taught them to be confident. It told mm. them that they deserved to be in that room. And my state school would never have taught me that. That's so funny you said that. When I went to university, that was the thing I noticed. All the private school kids, I couldn't believe how confident they were. And <laughs> there was know. this group of us that were kind of went to Northern state schools and we kind of gravitated together and watched in awe. I mean, they weren't nasty <laughs> and they weren't, but we, they were just so confident. And we were like, yeah, well, yeah. you know, and actually... You know, really nice when I got to know them. There was not, you know, they were nice people, but it was this level of, of just absolute, I'm meant to be in the room. And, you know, we were creeping in a little bit. There you go. So now I tell people who are in their 30s who may say, I feel like an imposter, it's like in this room. I said, the fact that you're in that room tells you you're not an imposter because someone's had to invite you in and they've invited you in because you deserve to be there. So you have to stop feeling that way. I am a, uh, I don't agree with people who talk about imposter syndrome. I just, cause I, I just, I refuse to accept that I shouldn't be anywhere that I'm in. I can, I can go anywhere, whether it's, you know, Buckingham Palace or number 10 or a grime rave. This has been such a joyous, a lovely, uh, experience for me in your uh, and, you know, to hear 20 minutes or so talking about your wardrobe was just brilliant. And I feel completely invigorated by that. And I'm I'm definitely, you know what I might do is I might hire you for a day just to sort my husband's wardrobe out and kind of see if we can. All day long. I would love nothing better than to go shopping for clothes with your husband. He listens to this and he will come back from a morning walk with a dog and he'll go, I can't believe you said that about my wardrobe. Uh, Nihal, go and have a wonderful uh, rest of your day. And uh, I'm really, 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 you know, a big fan of Five Live. Love listening to you. So keep doing what you do because you are right. You're the best at what you do. Oh, thank you. Take care. Thank you so much, Nihal. Thank you, Gabby. It really feels like the theme of today's episode might be called change or reinvention. I think Nihal is a natural at it. He kind of does it organically without realising from rapper, performer, promoter, DJ, journalist. The segue is seamless. But at the same time, the backdrop of his energy and his youthfulness comes down, I think, to his wardrobe and his connection to music and dance. And I love the idea of keeping dancing well into your 70s. And while Lucy Kellaway's big change was a bit more pronounced in some ways, journalist to school teacher, her enthusiasm for that midlife career change is tangible. So thank you to Nihal and Lucy. And of course, to Lauren Armstrong Carter, our producer from Rethink Audio and Solgar, who have over 300 vitamins and minerals in their range. And at this time of year, you might be thinking about boosting your immune system with some vitamin C and zinc. I know I am. Thanks for being with us today. I'll see you soon. Bye bye.